Okay, so quick little peek behind the curtain for you all as far as as far as why this is a bonus episode instead of a regular episode. This was kind of a late addition, and most of the other episodes or all the rest of the other episodes this season, you know, all the way through April, Logan and I recorded in the spring and summer of 2020. And I kind of got going through and realized we didn't have an episode on Nelson Mandela. And that just seemed like a egregious oversight that we wanted to remedy. So we were recording this episode in December just so we could include it as an important piece to our timeline here. So, yeah, Logan, go ahead and uh, tell us about the movie. Or what are we doing? <laughs> we're doing Invictus today. Uh, it's a 2009 movie directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. Morgan Freeman is uh, Nelson Mandela, and Matt Damon plays... I'm going to have to look this one up because... Oh, I just I never had his name down. I just figured we would just call him Matt Damon. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, I'm going to refer to him as Matt Damon throughout the episode. Okay, <laughs> which is a horrible insult to the soccer player, or ah, rugby player. <laughs> oh, man, we're so American. <laughs> Francois... Okay, yes. <laughs> so uh, Matt Damon plays Francois Pinar, I think is how you say that. I don't know. I'm just going to call him Matt Damon because I'm going to butcher <laughs> that pronunciation. So apologies, Francois, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and also any anyone from any of the many groups that have names that we're about to butcher today. This is going to be a pretty butcher-heavy episode as far as pronunciations go. <laughs> I was just going to avoid most of them. And we got Nelson Mandela down, so we're good. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so it it, uh, it follows Nelson Mandela, um, and then so him kind of coming to power as the first black president in South Africa um, after the fall of apartheid. So this is in um, the early 1990s. Um, and then it also follows the uh, the Springboks, which is the the country's uh, rugby union team, and then their journey uh, to the 1995 Rugby World Cup. Okay, exactly. So I wanted to set up the history that kind of leads into South Africa this time, continuing from where we last were in South Africa when we talked about Zulu starring Michael Caine. So that was in the late 1800s with the British fighting some Zulu tribes and the Boers were kind of in the background there. So around that same time was, and actually a little bit before that, was when diamonds were discovered in South Africa in the 1860s. And it just blew up really quick. And by the 1870s and 1880s, 95% of the world's diamonds were coming out of South Africa. And then right around that same time, you then find gold in South Africa, and, and that blows up, and about a quarter of the world's gold by the 1880s was coming out of South Africa. So you have a massive amount of wealth uh, being created in South Africa, uh, which is, of course, going almost exclusively to the whites that are the ethnic minority in South Africa. Um, and then you get into the Boer Wars, which many people have heard of but don't really think about what they are. Basically, you had two white groups in South Africa because you had those of Dutch descent that came first and then those of British descent. So there was two kind of distinct groups. And the British, as they kind of, you know, flexed their colonial muscle, the Dutch Boers that had been there longer, you know, don't really like the British being in charge. And so there was two wars over that. And obviously that's a gross oversimplification, but that's what we do here. And we're just kind of moving along. So it was kind of just kind of different colonies that then ultimately were united in the Union of South Africa right before World War One, And 
it's just this interesting situation because obviously in the United States where we ha- we've had, you know, we brought over slaves and they were always an ethnic minority percentage wise. South Africa is just this weird situation where the bulk of the population is obviously black, but then the minority population whites just control everything. So it's about 80-20 as far as blacks to white population wise. But, you know, in, in like 1913, when they're kind of, you know, starting to draw up some of these initial laws of an actual South Africa that you're marked just 8% of the land for black settlement or black occupancy. And uh, the whites held 90% of the land in the country. And it's just kind of an untenable situation, but it just kind of maintains here for a long time. Yeah, so uh, during World War One, World War Two, they obviously were uh, fighting with the British. But what you do happen is kind of it seems like over the course of the first half of the 20th century, after the Boer Wars... The two white groups, the the Boers and the British, not exactly put away their differences. There's still kind of two official languages, Afrikaans, which is the derivation of Dutch, and English are kind of the two official languages. But mostly by, by 1960, they've thrown off the shackles of the actual British Empire, where they had been kind of a dominion state like we'd seen with Australia and Canada and all those, and now are independently South Africa and no longer associated with the British. Okay. Now, what becomes just an important part of keeping South Africa on the world stage for bad is the system of apartheid, which I think a lot of people have heard of and kind of know roughly what it is. Basically, I think the best way to explain it is to compare it to the quote-unquote Jim Crow South in the United States, where you kind of had these policies uh, centered around you know whites only, this and this. The difference right. in South Africa is... It was the entire country, and it was official. So instead of just like, oh, a few things here and there, and you know maybe a few kind of laws in this state and that state, it was national, and they were really hardlined about it. And it was also a, it was a minority control and a majority thing, which is a which is another good it's a, it's another distinction where you know Jim Crow was a majority yeah. suppressing a minority. In this case, it was the minority whites suppressing right. the majority of the country, which was black. Right, with their superior, you know force of arms and financial resources. So, right. So, yeah, the, the minority was fiercely suppressing through these harsh laws. And basically, it was just, yeah, just the formalization of these racist policies that already existed. So, 1948 is when they kind of, you know, really uh, made all this stuff official. And they were just really hard. Like, it was just it was just kind of violently enforced. So, all these, these things were not only the laws. They, I think probably because they were the ethnic minority, they felt they had to be extremely harsh or they would lose control. Right. But then the world just kind of was not okay with this. So, you know, in 1966, the UN calls apartheid a crime against humanity. And what I always kind of feel ashamed about is, you know, by the, they actually like, you know, 91 member countries, you know, kind of vote for the censorship of South Africa. The United States was one of four countries that didn't get on board with that, which, yep. you know, I'm, I'm sure was for largely economic reasons because I can't think uh, of... Well, no, it's because... The anti-apartheid movement was aligned with communist and socialist movements. Oh, true, true. Okay, so yeah, and, that's yeah. that's why the United States wasn't. That's why the United States was actually a kind of buddy buddy with with the South African government because they were um, they were all about stamping out socialism and communism in Africa. Right, and that actually leads to what then. Well, okay, two things. We'll, we'll get to the fall of apartheid here in a second. But yeah, so there was obviously then resistance from the blacks to apartheid. And initially, that was largely peaceful for a couple of decades, kind of like following the Muhammad Gandhi 
yeah policy and they thought maybe they could do it kind of like the indians did with the british and ultimately after that was not successful and frankly because the south african government was just probably way harsher than the british had been in india you know with you know violent suppression of any protest it it got violent and kind of to your point then too then it was the soviets that didn't did help arm the blacks against the the whites and apartheid there too which is why the fall of the Soviet Union, which you wouldn't necessarily think about as something that would help bring about the end of apartheid, was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So there was obviously the worldwide pressure to end apartheid, protest all of the world against apartheid, and this, you know, again, the systematic oppression of the of the blacks in South Africa by the ethnic minority whites. And once the Soviet Union fell, the whites could basically no longer use the kind of boogeyman of communism as kind of this excuse to keep suppressing the blacks who could, who they could say, well, hey, they're getting weapons from the communists, so therefore they are bad. That excuse kind of went away, and the moral high ground they could claim was gone, and apartheid collapsed. Now, well, why don't you go, tell us, go ahead and tell us then how Nelson Mandela himself played into this whole story. Yeah, so Nelson Mandela, who is, you know, one of the, basically the two main characters in this movie... He was born in South Africa in 1918. He actually grew up in like a kind of a small village, um, but it was relatively um, isolated from a lot of the um, apartheid-related atrocities. I mean, obviously, he he knew about them because he lived in South Africa, but wasn't really exposed to them very much until the 1940s. So when he was growing up, he was the son of basically like a a chief of, of their local tribe. So he was kind of groomed for leadership. He uh, went to law school, and then he moved to Johannesburg in the early 1940s. And that was where he was kind of like first experienced this stuff in person, these, you know, the basically state-sanctioned racism. And so he joined the ANC, uh, which is the African National Congress, in 1943. And it's basically a group that is, they're anti-apartheid, they were anti-national party, they basically wanted to bring equality to the black population of South Africa. And so like you like you mentioned, they did initially start a kind of a nonviolent civil disobedience type of movement with, you know, protests, nonviolent. And they were they were helped by and uh he was also secretly joined the uh, South African Communist Party around this time as well. But eventually, like you said, those methods just weren't, um, they weren't effective. They weren't getting the results that they wanted. So in 1961, Medela co-founded the militant arm of the ANC, which, and here's another one of the uh, pronunciation butcherings. Uh, But this movement was called, or this organization was called Umkunto we Suizwe, which is, it means the spear of the nation. And so that was the ANC's basically militant arm, and they carried out uh, multiple bombings and attacks throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they actually were uh, absorbed or integrated into the South African National Defense Force in 1994. So like these guys who were like these revolutionary militants, then after apartheid was ended and Mandela came to power, they were then officially brought into the South African military, which I think is kind of interesting. 
When, and just a quick side thing too is how you know one of the first one of the first things in the movie is uh, the one of the rugby coaches calling Mandela a terrorist, and this is why. Well, and in his mind, he was kind of justified in saying that. I mean, they they did carry out bombings. They planted um, like landmines along roads and stuff. They they did like kill some civilians. Right. It's it's Battle of Algiers but, all over again. Exactly. It's it's Battle of Algiers. It's uh, when the shakes the barley. When the when the shakes the barley. Exactly. It's it's that exact thing. It's you know they're they're kind of resorting to these these violent actions because they feel like they don't have any any other option. And the the government uh, labeled him a terrorist. Uh, the United States even government had had labeled him a terrorist um, at this point as well. So in 1962, uh, he was arrested and. He was sentenced to initially five years in prison, but then when he was in prison, they charged him with sabotage and with attempting to overthrow the government, which both of those things were technically true. (laughs) Even, you know, which obviously the the government uh, was not good. And, uh, you know, however, he felt that he was justified in, in doing those things, but technically according to the law in South Africa or whatever, he was he was guilty of both of those things. But he uh he refused to defend himself because he didn't want to legitimize the charges against him. Oh wow. But he, he was convicted to uh or he was sentenced to life in prison um and he spent twenty seven years in prison mostly on Robin Island, but I think he went to a few different prisons. Um, and you actually see that in the movie. They they take a tour of the of the prison. They see the cell that he was in and the like the courtyard with the rocks and stuff. But so then in 1990, basically because domestic and international pressure forced the hand of the nationalist government, he was released. And then he was elected president in 94, I believe. 1994, right, which was the first election in which blacks were allowed to vote. And he won in a landslide, right? And and actually, as we see that kind of, the first scene of the movie is like we talked about. It's, it's kind of that motorcade, and they're like, "Oh, what's happening?" And it's like, "Oh, they just released that terrorist Mandela." Yeah, and basically, talk, right. but, but the, the timing is interesting. Actually, I I need to look up the exact dates. But you look at it's just crazy how it's tied to so many other world events. But if you look at the fall of the Berlin Wall, yep, to the release of Nelson Mandela, I think it was like yeah. what four months, like. I mean, it's it's yeah. just cr- crazy that this stuff is all and, it, and it's and it's not a coincidence. Like it it, it did all to have a ripple effect around right. the world. It, it is it is all connected, and and that's it, that kind of ties back then to the uh, the spear of the nation. Um, that group that was the the militant group in South Africa. They were you know doing bombings and landmine campaigns in South Africa, but they were also in other countries. They were in Angola. They were in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe fighting for like pro Marxist and pro socialist movements there at the same time that Che Guevara was doing the same thing and that the you know Cubans were sending troops to Africa to try and uh, prop up these you know socialist and communist uh, rulers and and parties and stuff um, that were then obviously fiercely contested by the West and by the United States so yeah this is kind of a a lot of what we have talked about as far as um you know the cold war and the the 20th century kind of conflict between you know capitalism and communism it, it all ties into the story 
And I just can't help but think of all the shades of gray where Mandela is now almost universally seen as this hero and Gandhi slash Martin Luther King Jr. type figure. But he's also kind of buddy-buddy with, you know, Gaddafi and these other kind of dictators ar- around the world that, you know, the right. United States views as the bad guy. And someone like Che, who we've talked about, you know, on the one hand, seeing him as, you know, this guy fighting for the people, but the other hand, being willing to just straight up murder and being cruel on the other end, and even Mandela being okay with the violence that went against civilians earlier, then somehow he gets elevated to the saint status, and I'm not even saying it's unjustified. It's just so, so complicated, and we yeah. come back to it a million times, how we have to you know, allow for these shades of gray. And honestly, too, you think about this, what we're seeing right now, you know, with the whole the cancel culture thing, and would even a Mandela today, would someone decide, oh, nope, because he murdered these civilians back here in the 60s, or not directly, but you know what I'm saying, he was right. on that side. You know what, we don't care about the decades of good work he did anymore, and we're right. now deciding well, that he's canceled. And and he also, like, he was married three different times, one of his wives alleged, you know, physical abuse, like... It's complicated, There's, right? Exactly, exactly. Right, right. And, and I'm, I'm saying this as someone who admires Nelson Mandela. I don't want to give the wrong right. impression there. Right. It's just it's it's complicated, and I think we are too quick on all sides to just kind of want to paint people with a single color and uh, not look at the whole the whole picture. For sure. Well, some, something else I wanted to mention, and this is kind of a this is kind of a, a sidetrack, but it'll be really quick, I promise. Um, so, something else that's interesting about the end of apartheid and the kind of ripple effect that it has on other events. So, during the 1970s, South Africa actually developed a nuclear weapons program. So, they had built atomic bombs, basically that they were planning on not necessarily using, but having if they needed to use them against any of the countries that were becoming communist around them. Oh, so like they would have been willing to nuke these neighboring African countries? Maybe. I mean, because especially At least if one of the possibility. Aligned, yeah. Right. If they're aligned with the Soviets, you know, it's not, or the even like you saw in the, in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, like the Soviets were willing to hand out nuclear weapons if they thought it was going to, you know, get them... More friends. Them, an, an edge on the on the international stage. Right. So so the South Africans developed a nuclear weapons program in the seventies. They voluntarily dismantled it in nineteen eighty nine and they were the first country to do so, which sounds really, really good, except for the fact that the only reason that they did that was because they could see on the horizon that there was going to be a like a you know, the majority black community population in their country was going to be allowed to vote and they were afraid that a communist probably black guy was going to be president soon and they didn't want that person to have nuclear weapons so they dismantled them all in 1989 that is fascinating and again talk about shades of gray and all kinds of different issues at play there it's like on the one hand like you know nuclear non-proliferation like they were supporters of it they got rid of all their weapons voluntarily like that's awesome but it's because they didn't want a black person to have them. Just so they wouldn't have to give them to the other party, basically. Yeah, wow. Uh, oh, so it's interesting, too. And then just because it deals particularly with the what we're going to talk about in the film being about this, this rugby uh, run for the World Cup, there's also, what we haven't mentioned yet, there, there's something to be said for 
sports is actually one of the major driving forces for ending apartheid, along with everything else we've already said. That basically the whites in South Africa wanted to be able to play international sports again. So one of the right. one of the you know restrictions that the world had put on them, they basically and I, I don't know what year it started, but they stopped allowing South Africa to have a team at the soccer and rugby world cups and so you grew up watching all these teams and all of a sudden you're ineligible because you're of your country's political policies and so i think another reason they were so willing to end apartheid was so they could play sports again that's also why the team's kind of rusty is they hadn't played at the international level in a while right were they banned from the olympics as well do you know i i'm gonna vote yes <laughs> honestly just <laughs> I, I i don't know oh there's an entire wikipedia page called Apartheid-era South Africa and the Olympics. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that. Okay, so uh, it looks like South Africa was actually banned from uh, the Olympics. They did not compete in any Olympic Games between 1964 and 1988. Oh, wow. So, so 24 years right, they right. were banned because of apartheid. And basically the, uh, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, said you are not allowed to compete until apartheid is no more. Wow. I was surprised they weren't willing to make some kiss. That's crazy for for a country that is honestly you know very obsessed with uh, with their sports team. So they were watching, the team was still playing, but they weren't able to compete at the international level as far as the rugby goes. Right. So and then obviously we'll get to kind of accuracy stuff as we go throughout here. But generally speaking, just kind of right, I think right at the bat, this is based on a nonfiction book by John Carlin called "Playing the Enemy: Nelson Mandela and the Game That Made a Nation." And I really didn't find anything about large historical inaccuracies as, in, during the translation. Obviously, they didn't, they didn't translate it perfectly. But if anything, they left things out of the book as opposed to altering things from the book. So I really couldn't find anything about major discrepancies. So I'm going to say, even though obviously no film can give the complete picture, I don't think that there is anything in this film that is just a complete fabrication it might be a you know a scene made to represent kind of a larger truth or events but as far as the the watts i think they basically get it right and this is a pretty faithful depiction of reality minus a few key things we'll kind of get to at the end here so yeah i mean it, it's it really is just about you know the end of apartheid nelson mandela gets released from prison then we kind of jump ahead four years to him getting elected president and then basically we see, and I, I guess I don't know how long it was from the election to his first day at work, but that's kind of when I think I would say our story really starts is his first day at work. And it's actually a very you know poignant scene in that he is the new president coming into the South African version of the White House, which I don't know what that is called. But all the white office workers from the previous administration are basically packing up and heading out. And yeah. then... He calls everyone in and says, I mean, you can leave if you want to leave, but don't assume I'm firing you. You guys have been working here. You know the you know the routine. We'd love right. to have you stay on and serve your country. Right. Basically, like some of them were all they were like packing up their offices already. Right. Right. Fully prepared to be fired that day. Yeah. And and honestly, so this is actually why Mandela is such an important figure and why we wanted to make sure we included this film is if this one person had decided to approach this whole thing differently, it would have been a completely different situation, and I yeah. don't see how massive violence would would have been avoided. Yeah. Just like, uh, just like with his uh, with his security team. So he brings in all of the uh, white South African security guards to work with his, you know, yep. couple of guys that he has who are all black, 
and the one guy goes in he goes hey you know we we can't have these guys around he goes well they're they're here to protect the president he goes well these guys were just trying to kill us like not that long ago and he's like yeah well basically so what not anymore and now we have to be unified and this is what it means right this isn't you know just because we won doesn't mean that we get to now do you know exclude anybody else like we stand for unity so we're all going to be unified right and and frankly then the theme of this film and the theme of Mandela's life post prison is the power of forgiveness and that yeah he's going to turn the other cheek and even though these people who have been oppressing us for decades and murdering us in the streets we're gonna say you know what now that we're in charge we forgive you right and it's just like and and basically unilaterally and then of course then again that gets to the rugby thing. They show the scene. Now, this is a scene where I don't, I can't imagine this played out exactly how we see it, but I'm guessing something similar happened. They voted to eliminate the white rugby team that they just saw as a, a symbol of the oppression of the whites over the blacks, even the, the green and yellow colors and everything. They're like, we're going to get rid of this team. We'll still have rugby. We'll, we'll, we're going to make right. a new team, new mascot, new colors and everything. And Mandela talks them out of it and says, I know you disagree with me on this. But it is so important that we basically extend this olive branch that we know how important this rugby team is to you all. And we're going to we're going to keep it. And I'm going to try to convince my people to get behind it, even though they can't stand to look at the green and yellow. And even more than that, they then basically kind of like co-opt it and turn it into a symbol then for like their movement and their ideals. Right. You know, basically everyone the black South Africans kind of used it as a symbol of nationalism and oppression. And then Mandela turned it into, well, in the, in the movie, uh, turns it into this, this symbol of national unity instead. Right. Without alienating the whites who still continue to support the team. Exactly. And this is an image I'd probably seen, you know, before this movie ever came out, but it's this, it's, you know, it's Mandela wearing the green and yellow of the screen box. And that was huge. Huge, right? Huge. This yeah. beloved newly elected leader who has spent 27 years in prison fighting for the rights of blacks in South Africa is now wearing what is seen as the symbol of the oppressor in an effort to unite the country and recognize their common heritage as South Africans and that the racial stuff was no longer important. And he wasn't, is that wasn't now. Now that the blacks are in charge, it's not going to be the whites dominating the blacks. It's like, no, no, no. Now the blacks are in charge, it's going to be everyone's equal. And he right. was just going to fight for that tooth and nail. You also see this with the, uh, with the flags. So at the beginning of the movie, the flags that you see a lot of people, even though South Africa, you know, apartheid was over, South Africa had a new flag um, in 1994, the, the flag that you know today, it's, it's pretty iconic. But you see... A lot of people still waving the old flag, basically, as a kind of uh, not so subtle dog whistle that, hey, we we don't, you know, support the new South Africa. But then at the end of the movie, you see more people, you know, everyone's waving the, the actual South African flag. And there's actually a scene in the movie where Nelson Mandela goes out of his way to go talk to a white guy in the crowd at a rugby game and thank him for flying the... Uh, the new South African flag. Yes, yes, which is, yeah, kind of a, a neat moment. So yeah, basically, we don't really get into a lot of the politics outside of just Mandela's obsession with the rugby thing as a symbol, but it, it was it was significant. Again, this this did happen. This was kind of something he latched onto as important for the country, 
and we do see the team go from now again I, I haven't looked up the details of how accurate how bad they actually were and getting good this quick because you know as a sports person that seems a big change for not a lot of change in the roster right. it, seems, it seems unlikely that they went from this like oh we had like pretty much suck like we're the worst and then they play you know at the end they played the all blacks from new zealand that are like setting scoring records against other international teams and they win right but the end of the day they did and I mean, right and i know right, that that right. actually happened but... <laughs> no it, but so it's, it's just crazy it is a crazy underdog story that almost like because it's about these bigger issues this the pure sports side of it you almost don't really realize how big a deal that is. That New right. Zealand was this unstoppable juggernaut yeah. coming to the host country, South Africa, who only qualified because they were the host country. Otherwise, they right. weren't even getting into the tournament. Exactly. It's almost like they get a token spot and then still win it all against this juggernaut all-black team from New Zealand. Yeah, it, it's a huge Cinderella story. That again is almost kind of lost in the idea of just like, oh, hey, wouldn't it be neat if for our country that is kind of newly altered, that it would help unite us if we won? And then you need the biggest upset in the history of sports, basically, <laughs> to pull that off. And that is so uh, not focused on in the sports way. It, it's, it's, it's everything's about symbolism in this film. And yeah, we get that the win is a big deal symbolically, but the nuts and bolts of making this sports win happen just seem astronomical or astronomically unlikely and uh, I, I guess i really didn't research into I mean, we show them kind of buckling down getting more serious and again i guess we get serious anyway too if all of a sudden you now now do have a international level to play out which you previously had not been allowed right honestly maybe they were never that bad it was more just kind of disunion and not having played at the world stage for a while so maybe the the potential sure. had was always there because again they don't they don't really change the roster they change the coaches Right. Well, and and that's that's kind of what we see in the movie. Right. I mean, you see them like, I don't know, maybe working out like a little bit harder, but mostly it's just because they kind of decide to they just kind of decide that okay, we're going to like actually be serious about this now, and then they turn out to be really really good. And a key point though that I actually do buy into and it almost it was probably to me it's kind of the emotional highlight of the movie is when the country says, "Oh hey, in addition to your schedule with all the press and all the practices and preparing for the World Cup, we're also going to make you go and do these clinics all around the country where you basically will teach rugby to the poor black kids." And right. they're just like, "We don't have time for this. You want us to play well, and our schedule's full enough. We're just not interested." And they're like, "Yeah, we're not asking. You're doing this." Right. Well, and then it turns out that the inspiration they get from that was worth more than like exactly practices. Exactly, and them. I do think there is something to that. That there's a you know, if you get into the sports psychology side of things, you go from feeling like you're representing a country that no longer actually supports you to oh no, we've met the kids on the ground who grew up basically you know playing soccer and ignoring rugby because rugby was the white people's sport. To now the little black kids are you know, supporting the Springboks and okay with the green and the yellow when they see Mandela wear it. And they're like, okay, rugby's cool. And oh, hey, we've actually met these players. And then also then what the players get out of that of, oh, these are just kids. And we're having a blast playing rugby with these kids. And who cares that their parents grew up hating us? You know, these kids, this is a new generation. This is a new beginning. And then I think the weight of that in a positive way is with them when they're, playing these World Cup games. I, I think it really does matter. It really, really does. 
And again, they we've kind of already said it, they do ultimately win the World Cup Championship and Mandela is able to present the trophy to Matt Damon. Yes. <laughs> Francois Pinar or whatever. <laughs> um, and now, it is it is a solid, solid movie. And what I wanted to kind of then jump into is, so the, the immediate aftermath, the kind of the questions I wanted to ask ourselves was, <laughs> did it work? Was the country unified? You know, was Mandela successful? And it's kind of both. So kind of, yes, like it did work. He did get the blacks to ultimately support the Springboks. And right. when the country won, it was a shared moment of euphoria that the country shared. But <laughs> it was short-lived because ultimately that doesn't actually solve any problems. And so it was both. So it's not as simple as the movie makes it seem like, you know, racism is over in South Africa. It's now a utopia. It's like, well, no. <laughs> They shared a great right. moment, a sincere moment that did unite them for that victory. But then all the problems that were still existing on the ground with the whites controlling the economy and all that, those were still issues. Nothing, nothing actually changed fundamentally other than, hey, now we, we might, you know, we have this shared South Africanness that we can focus on a little bit. And it was definitely a good thing. It was definitely worth doing, which is why I'm going to say, yes, ultimately Mandela was successful. And this established, you know, what he saw as what the spirit of those countries should be going forward. But it's just as far as people's day-to-day lives weren't fundamentally changed by this victory. Which, again, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. But, you know, the movie kind of makes it seem like we're ending on this high note and everything's now good forever. The long-term aftermath. Uh, so, it's it's okay. It, I don't know. It's, it's, it's rough. It's, honestly, South Africa is still a country with a lot of corruption and a lot of crime. Yep, unemployment's still really high. Right. Um, arguably, racial disparity is a big issue. Right. It it raises one of the most xenophobic countries in the world, as far as how yeah. they view outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. The HIV AIDS pandemic hit South Africa really, really hard. Right. And Mandela took a lot of flack for not not doing enough about it. Which I even had my notes. He did. He did admit. Actually, post presidency, he did a lot more for HIV/AIDS, and kind of said he did drop drop the ball on it, just because South Africans as a people were just too skittish and hesitant to talk about anything related to sex, and so it was just a conversation the nation wasn't willing to have, and they kind of let that uncomfortableness exacerbate the problem. Frankly, yes, Mandela did a lot of good. He he did he did what he could in a country where these things were tough to accomplish. And he did, I would say he did move the needle. And well, well, and I was going to say maybe, you know, he moved the needle, but it's, it's, there's a lot to be said too, for like the things that didn't happen that like could have happened had someone else, but like potentially there could have been a full on, you know, civil war or there could have been full on genocide of the whites. If you had the wrong person like in charge. we saw in, right. in hotel Rwanda. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, kind so, of like, right. Oh, well we're in power now and we're the majority. So guess what we're going to do? It's bad news for white people in South Africa now. Right. Like, that could have definitely, that could have definitely happened. Right. And, and you're right. And, and it didn't. And so, right. So the biggest things they ended up fighting were, Things like, well, obviously, the problems that previously existed with, you know, the the wealth disparity. But also, they had a big issue of, well, basically, they called it a brain drain. Because, obviously, the whites were more educated because they had all the money. And then right. when the blacks are allowed to take, again, so it's disingenuous to say, the quote, the blacks took over. It's like, no, no, no. The blacks were allowed to vote. Right. And then so that drastically right. increased the odds of black yeah. officials getting elected. So it wasn't the blacks taking over. It was the blacks are now allowed to vote. Right. And now they're, the voices of the country are now actually being heard. But 
So then a lot of the whites then just straight up left the country. And so a lot of people who are highly educated and highly qualified in certain, you know, industries, etc., just literally left the country and were like, Which yeah, is whatever. Something that we saw in Lumumba. Exactly. Exactly. Which is the all of the, you know, all the white Belgians basically either they wanted to leave or they said, Oh, well, who else here is college educated that would like to, you know, take over this government position or this, you know, high military position? Oh, no one because we haven't allowed any of you to go to college for the last however many years? Okay, I guess I'm still gonna keep my power then. Right. So when Mandela took office, there's about forty million people in South Africa. 23 million, so more than half, lacked electricity or adequate sanitation, and a third of the population was illiterate. So that's that was the world he was inheriting. Which is insane. For right. 1994, a third right. of your country's illiterate. That's crazy. And a country that, again, the country, you know, th- there was money in the country, but the people didn't have it. <laughs> right. And just, just talk about, you know, the disparity. So he, he was coming into just, basically he was given an impossible task. So you're right. He was a success. But it was also a position where, I mean, it was an impossible an impossible task, and he did the best with it, and did ultimately succeed by avoiding some of the things that, you know, like you said, had happened in other parts of Africa. And, and so also, he was extremely popular, you know, he won a landslide, but did not seek re-election. He, he was also pretty old. He was 76 when he got elected, so by the end of his term, his five-year term, he was already in his early 80s. He did not seek re-election, and initially planned to retire but kind of got bored, and then he kind of came back and was doing a lot of just, you know, meetings and traveling the world and just kind of doing charity stuff and actually, like I said, sort of working more on the AIDS issue and just was a very public figure. And obviously that's when I would have kind of got to know him more. I guess I would have been in high school when he got elected president, but, you know, kind of then through college, I was hearing him do all these other things. You know, then at one point, though, I think in 2004, he did, quote, retire from retirement because he's getting old. He wasn't in the best of health. And had a lot of uh, lung issues and prostate issues and things like that, uh, which I think we even see a little bit in the movie. Ultimately, then he did die in, in 2013 at the age of 95. And the country itself, again, it, it struggles, frankly. Like, they, have, they have issues with crime, but, you know, they, it's, it's, it's an interesting boat because South Africa is by no means, you know, what we would think of as a third world country. But at the same time, is it maybe right. comparable to a Brazil that feels like just like a good comp where there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of poverty, but it's also a very powerful country on the world stage. Is that maybe a right. fair comp? Sure. Yeah. As uh, as illustrated in the 2009 documentary District 9. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm obviously joking, but like at the same time, it that movie does kind of do a good job of illustrating, you know, showing both the, you know, I don't know, the first worldness of their government and their, you know, their upper class is right. pretty similar to like what a normal middle class American life would be. But there's also right. like abject poverty. Right. And I think we take that for granted in the United States. As much as much issues we, that we have and we do have, you know, poverty and hunger issues, too. But not to the extent that you see in places like Brazil or South Africa. And yeah, we do want to definitely plug District 9 if you haven't seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a really good film set in South Africa. Right, really, any any Neil Blomkamp movie. Actually, I'm not familiar with other. What are, what are some others? I don't even know. Uh, did of... you see Elysium? I don't actually know if that takes place in South Africa or not. It mostly takes no, place in No, but isn't that Bad Damon? Yeah. Uh, hey! And, Cha- and Chappie. Did you see Chappie? No. <laughs> the It's a, the robot guy. I don't know. Hugh Jackman's in it. Okay. Anyway. Okay. 
That one does take place in South Africa. Uh, okay. Okay, so uh, uh, so I did want to read a quote here from Nelson Mandela. Because he, he was ultimately seen as, again, we kind of you know talked about the Shades of Grey with you know his life and personality, but he is ultimately widely regarded just you know this this important positive figure for not just South Africa, uh, but but the world. And so here here was a quote from 1994. So this is you know right as he's getting elected president. I don't know, I, I thought it just kind of encompasses a lot of of what we're talking about with this situation. Uh, so he said. I was first and foremost an African nationalist fighting for our emancipation from minority rule and the right to control our own destiny. But at the same time, South Africa and the African continent were part of the larger world. Our problems, while distinctive and special, were not unique, and a philosophy that placed those problems in an international and historical context of the greater world and the course of history was valuable. I was prepared to use whatever means necessary to speed up the erasure of human prejudice and the end of chauvinistic and violent nationalism. And again, I just think that beautifully said by Mr. Mandela and just crazy that, you know, 26 years, 27 years later, how I think poignant that that sentiment still still is, especially as we've seen in the last, you know, five years a rise in nationalism throughout the world and you know we want to kind of recognize it's one thing to be proud of your country it's a dangerous thing to be violently passionate about how your country is the best and other countries suck (laughs) right or the elements within your own country who don't think you're the best are somehow dangerous to your country's uh, survival patriotism good nationalism bad <laughs> there you go that's that's a good distinction okay so and before we kind of uh button this up by talking about the film itself uh i wanted you to talk you had done some research on rugby so i, I i'm a big yes. american football fan and i i have a rough idea from watching this movie about how rugby kind of works but see if you can spell it out for me oh i was i was lost in all the rugby scenes i mean i kind of know like Right, it seems like it's nonstop, and how do you not have pads? And yeah, right. And this is this is like the only thing, like the the only reason that I even knew remotely what was going on is because I know like American football. Oh, true, that's American true. You're right. Is, that- it, it it does it is kind of like it's heavily influenced by rugby because rugby was was first. Okay. But, I mean, for the most part, I was like, what? The, now they're throwing this guy up in the air, and they're like, the one guy's <laughs> rolling the ball, and wh- why are they all in this kind of like weird formation pushing each other around? I don't, I didn't understand it. It at almost all. looks like American football without the forward pass. Seems to be a, it is yes, so, close. <laughs> so, yeah, without, without, you know, just like going into a, like a, a super long dissertation about the boring rules of rugby, because there's a lot of them. So rugby is, there's actually two kinds of rugby, rugby league and rugby union, um, which <laughs> anyone who like knows anything about rugby is probably just going to be laughing at us this entire time because this, this is, is, yeah, this is just like, you giving me like the cliff note. Yeah. <laughs> three-year-old stuff. Um, so rugby union is what we see played in the movie. Um, it's the most common type of uh, rugby in the world. Rugby was first started in like the mid 19th century, beginning of the 19th century. In, uh, it originated in the UK, which is why they play it in South Africa and also all over the world because imperialism. <laughs> um, it's uh, so two teams uh, with 15 players on the field at a time. There's eight forwards and seven backs, which is where you get kind of the, you know, like in American football, we have backs as well. There is no forward passing. So you try to advance the ball down the field. Um, you can pass laterally and behind you. 
and it has cards like soccer so like if you you know oh like a roughing the roughing the person kind of thing yeah right so like uh if uh you know like in american football there's like flags right uh, rugby has cards red and yellow cards like like soccer um so the way that you score there's three ways well three main ways to score uh the, the first way is called a try which is where you get the ball past the try line which is essentially the end zone and you touch the ball down on the ground just like in American football, we have a touchdown. Okay, that's kind of cool. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Touchdown is I touch the ball down on the ground. Okay, right. Nice. Then after you score a try, you can score a conversion. So a try is worth five points. A conversion is worth two points. And you do that by place kicking the ball through the uprights. So it's like the extra point. So very similar there. So right. that's actually very similar. And again, I guess if football came from rugby, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, right. Then the other way is either on like a penalty kick. Um, So they have penalty kicks just like in soccer. A penalty kick or at any time during the game, uh, you can drop kick it, basically drop the ball onto the ground and kick it through the uprights and that gets you three points. Technically still allowed in American football, but it doesn't happen. And Doug Flutie did it like 25 years ago or 10 or 15 years ago. And it was like the last, it was the first time it had been done in like 50 years right he did it yeah right anyway but it's like it's like a common thing in rugby right in rugby it's normal yeah okay right so there's a a couple of other um big things to mention uh one is called the scrum so it's basically anytime there's like a stoppage and they come back there's a you know it's the in the movie or anytime you see oh is that okay so that's the biggest thing on rugby i've never understood so that's basically it's almost like a tip off in a basketball game it's like a tip off or like a face off in hockey yeah but you do oh, okay but you do it basically at every dead ball right so so there so is they, no possession like in american football right so they they'll they all kind of like interlock their heads and they're pushing right. each other and someone from the side rolls the ball in the middle and using their hands and feet they they try to push the ball out either side okay so does the ref put the ball in who does the ref put the ball underneath the scrum no it's one of the players so that's how do they decide like, which team because it gets strategic um, then, right? De- it's depend right. It's dependent on the on the situation. So I think depending on how the scrum, like how it was initiated, who had it last, or who scored last, or whatever. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, so in theory, you could score. And so after a score, do they go straight to a scrum, or do they kick it off like in football? No, they kick. I think they kick it off because it, okay. it has kickoffs like football too. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, the scrum is the only thing I never understood. People that actually know the rules are just pulling their hair out right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, they think this is adorable. (laughs) Right, and then the other thing that you see, that we see uh, in the movie that I thought was kind of crazy, and I don't know if they have this in any other sports, the closest thing that I can think of is like an inbounds pass in basketball. Um, It's kind of like like uh, an inbounds pass in uh, soccer, but more organized and they call it a line out um, basically so a, a line out is, is anytime you go out of bounds the team that was the offending team you know the other team gets to pass it in so they have one guy throwing it in and they line up basically in two parallel lines next to the guy and the dude throws the ball up over the top of these two parallel lines and they jump up in the air and you're allowed to lift players in the air to try and grab it so that's where you see the two lines of guys and they're like one dude will jump up and his teammates will literally throw him like pick him up and hold him like 10 feet in the air and he you know will reach up and and get the ball that's called a line out and that's another thing that's like similar to like an inbounds pass but like obviously you don't see people throwing dudes in the air in basketball or anything it's kind right. of like that a, that's kind of unique to rugby but yeah. at the same time you kind of you could almost see things like that working if they were allowed in american football or basketball or something where i mean 
Imagine like if in basketball, you could just like throw a player up by the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of crazy. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but thinking though too is this the the evolution and how you do see it's it's almost like you would see with like two similar languages that are a common root. You know, yes. in history, you could totally see the common roots of you know you think of soccer. And football, American football, sorry right. from our, our, our outside the U.S. listeners, right. uh, and rugby, and how these things would have evolved and end up separate. And I, 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 do, yeah. I do find that fascinating. But then even stuff like we were talking about, you know, how that's, you know, the, the line out is similar to like an inbounds pass in basketball or the... Right, uh, you know, right. You take a, these a elements. is kind of, it's like a face-off or in hockey or a, or a tip off in basketball. So you do see like this really, this super old sport has carryover into sports that then were invented later. Right. Or or again, basically think back to say at some point in the 1840s, there were, you know, kids playing a game that was, you know, basically not really football, not really rugby, not really soccer, but also kind of all three without necessarily, you know, it was just the game they played on the playground that day. You know what I'm saying? And like, you yeah. just, and, this, and then these things get codified. And it is kind of neat how they then become established, and now there are the official rules of rugby and the official rules of the NFL, and they are very different sports. But it, you know, at the end of the day, they came back to games that were just being played, and that's all it is. Is just we kind of make up rules to you know make things fair, and then those rules change. And then this group over here is making different rules. And it's it's so much like a language as far as oh, okay, well you can see the commonalities here, but then the differences here as they evolved over time. And I don't know, right. I, I I do I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is kind of like with football, with rugby, it's like it was designed that with the different positions. So with the with the forwards and the backs, it was designed so that, oh, if you're like, you know, a great big guy, but like you're not very fast, well, you can play rugby. You can be like forward if you're like, you know, you're a little guy, so you're not like super powerful, but you're crazy fast. You can be a back. You know, oh, you're good at kicking, you can play rugby. You're good at running, you can play rugby. You're, you know, mm. it was kind of designed so that no matter what your strength oh, or your body type was. All the guys can play. You could, you could play, yeah. Right. Whereas soccer, <laughs> unless, I mean, goalie for the big guy. But you don't, basically, but. Right, yeah. but you, you don't, right, you, you don't see any, like, you know, six foot, seven, 350 pound dudes playing soccer, but they're all over the place in rugby. Right. So yeah, similar, I guess, American football is similar too, as far as, yeah, the whole different types of players for different skills and rugby right. rugby has that as well. And then, so what's interesting too, is obviously the rugby guys are wearing far less equipment, little to no padding. Right. No helmets, mouth guards basically is it. <laughs> right. So a couple of things on that. So uh, Lou Holtz, who was the coach for Notre Dame for a long time, was kind of this, I and mean, this, I haven't heard about this recently, but you know, even like 20 years ago, was basically saying like, I don't think he was necessarily advocating for this, but he was throwing it out there that removing the helmets from American football would actually help because it changes the way you play. And so that by overprotecting players, you now see yourself as just this, you know, I'm now I'm just a projectile. I think there's research that backs that up too. Like no, right. The better that helmets have gotten, basically you can, you the can more take concussions like you get. slightly, right. right. You can take slightly warps or slightly not as hard hits over and over and over again. And that's what gives you the long-term brain damage. Right, right. Um, it's kind of like where they talk about, you know, like boxers versus MMA fighters where the more padding you have on the gloves, it's actually, you're more likely to get the brain damage. Right. Boxing's actually arguably more dangerous than MMA, and right. NFL football is actually arguably more dangerous than, than rugby. Right. 
anyway, there's a little t- tangent on on sports, which uh, we both we both dig. So so Invictus. Uh, so the the movie itself, it's really solid. It uh, it only got two Oscar nominations for uh, Morgan Freeman as lead actor and Matt Damon as supporting actor. It's a seventy six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think all that's about right. This isn't a great great film. But there's also nothing necessarily wrong with it. Like, I can't say, like, oh, here are its flaws. It's more just maybe not telling that grand uh, or an original of a story uh, film-wise. So I can see why maybe it didn't right. get the Best Picture nomination or isn't everybody, it's not like a 90%. But it's solid. I, I, I can't think of anything really objectionable. I mean, it's just predictable, I guess. You, you can understand from the beginning. They're not going to yeah. make this movie unless they either win it all or, you know, lose it close right. Rocky style at the end. And, like, the performances are good, but they're not groundbreaking. Like, you know, Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon are both doing accents, and that's about the that's about the highest, like, wow factor you get from either one of their performances. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, there is, it's not hugely emotional within the character. Like, as, as emotional as this stuff could be, we don't see these emotional scenes or these big, you know, throwdown fight scenes, you know, like, verbally. Like, we, there's not really a lot of conflict, I guess, in the movie. Right, which is ironic, <laughs> given the amount of tension that there should be. It's almost like he would make. It's almost Eastwood's version of a Disney movie in some ways. Like, kind of. You could you could definitely make a harsher version of this. That, but again, it's also yeah. it would be a big story. It almost needs to be a whole series, honestly, with the whole apartheid leading into this kind of stuff. I don't know. Right. So with the uh, the measuring stick of would this be better as a as a ten part Netflix series? I think oh right. I think, for sure, right? Stealing from yeah, stealing from the uh, the rewatchables podcast. Yes, yeah. I, I think definitely it would be better done if you if you took your time and spelled it out and kind of did the whole season as a whole series, the rugby season that is. The film title <laughs> Invictus. So it's it's Latin for unconquerable, but specifically it's the name of a poem by 19th century English writer William Ernest Henley. He wrote a poem called an Invictus that Mandela read while in prison, and it really helped inspire him. And I think they, you know, they kind of, you kind of hear the voiceover in the movie. And I don't know if they make it really super clear in the movie, but the voiceover you hear, it's not Mandela's own words; it's Mandela reading that poem. So I actually kind of, I mean, we've kind of gone long enough over here already, but it, it's not, it's not a long, it's not a long poem. I do want to go ahead and read the whole poem, but what I really, really want everyone to do is just think about Nelson Mandela's experience and you can really, really see why this poem would resonate so much with with Nelson Mandela while he was in prison, thinking about, you know, trying to free his country from oppression and, and, and all those kinds of things. So, So here's the poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments with the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. So yes, basically just despite the outside forces on my life, at the end of the day, I decide. I mean, you just, that's, that's a powerful sentiment. Again, it's for, for being written in the 1870s. That's, I mean, that's something I think people can, uh, you know, find a way to apply to their own lives today. And so you can definitely see, you know, an imprisoned Nelson Mandela 
taking solace in that and saying like nope and then when he gets out of prison how again his his response is forgiveness i, I don't know I, I just i see a connection there I, I think it's i think it's a great title i think it's a great poem i i think I, you just i don't know I just, all the connecting threads are, are pretty neat there absolutely okay final thoughts <laughs> it's pretty good go watch it <laughs> yeah, but go. definitely you'll get more out of it i think you'll get more out of it if you like watch a five or ten minute youtube video about the rules of rugby first and then go watch it <laughs> true because it's al- it's almost like quidditch if you don't know anything about rugby yeah right when when the rugby's going on it's like ooh, this looks exciting um i don't know what's happening uh but good thing in the movie though uh, that they like keep showing the scoreboard so you can understand if they're winning or losing. <laughs> I I'd be curious to hear a South African or a British person or someone who's grew up watching rugby. Is the rugby in the film any good, or is this just is like oh, right. it's it's Eastwood and Damon and all these guys who don't even know the sport? They didn't grow up; they don't know rugby. So right. is it actually like crappy rugby that we're seeing on screen because we don't know any different? Because I know sometimes I mean shoot, I mean American footballs bad half the times if the hollywood people don't know about american football so i wouldn't be surprised if it's really bad rugby (laughs) uh so yeah let us know if uh it's uh not up to snuff so yes thanks for indulging us here today and throwing in this uh episode at the relative last minute for us and uh we'll get back to our regularly scheduled program next tuesday (laughs) 